Well, as we have a seat, uh, grades four to six are dismissed to Bible time in the lobby. Well, I always think it's a really exciting day when the bishop is present, certainly for confirmations, but also because simply the presence of the bishop reminds us that we are not alone or adrift here at St. Peter's. We have oversight in the faith once delivered to the saints, and we're visibly plumbed in to a church built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus being the chief cornerstone. The presence of the bishop is also a good reminder that our clergy here at St. Pete's aren't just kind of rogue ministers doing whatever we want uh, and teaching whatever we think is right in our own eyes. We serve under authority, and I believe that's one of our values here at St. Peter's. Still learning them, but we're going, we're going. Ignatius of Antioch writes about this relationship with the bishop much more eloquently than I can, so I'm just going to read um, from Ignatius. Ignatius was the second bishop of Antioch in the second century, so really, really early. And by tradition, he was a disciple of the Apostle John. So think about that. This guy who I'm going to read here was a disciple of an apostle. So we say he still had the apostolic preaching ringing in his ears. So this is what he says about our relationship to the bishop. I think it's really beautiful. He says this to one of the churches. For Jesus Christ, our life, he says, without whom we cannot live, is the mind of the Father, just as the bishops appointed over the whole earth are in conformity with the mind of Jesus Christ. It is fitting, therefore, that you should be in agreement with the mind of the bishop, as in fact you are. Your presbyters, priests, elders, pastors, listen to this, are suited to the bishop as strings to a harp. <laughs> so in your harmony of mind and heart, the song you sing is Jesus Christ. Every one of you, that is bishops, priests, deacons, lay people, the whole people of God, should form a choir, Ignatius says, so that in harmony of sound, through harmony of hearts, and unity taking the note from God, you may sing with one voice through Jesus Christ to the Father. Isn't that beautiful? So thank you, Bishop Braun, for, for being here, and thanks for being the harp that we can fix our strings to in Christ. It's great to have you here. And as you're here, and as we have the joy of witnessing confirmations today, I thought it would be a great opportunity to actually preach on confirmation. So let's quickly pray, and then we'll begin. Speak, Lord, your servants are listening. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So I know that many of us here uh, didn't grow up as Anglicans. Um, we're maybe we're new Anglicans. Or maybe we're suspicious Anglicans. That's okay. Uh, so confirmation might not be a ceremony that we're particularly familiar with or used to. Certainly, one of the major facets of confirmation, as the name suggests, is, is the personal confirming or ratifying of our baptism, especially if we were baptized as infants. At confirmation, we publicly confirm that we are personally embracing faith in Jesus for ourselves. And I don't want to downplay that facet of confirmation for one minute. It's really, really important. But if we focus too much on what we do in confirmation, we're in danger of missing the fact that I, I think the primary purpose of confirmation is not what we're doing for God, but what God is doing for us and in us in this ceremony. 
In fact, this ceremony, confirmation, wasn't even called confirmation for many centuries. Anciently, it was called the laying on of hands. And this is reflected in the title of our rite in the 1662 Book of Common Prayer, the order of confirmation or the laying on of hands upon those that are baptized. So it's the laying on of hands that is the central act of the service. But not all instances of the laying on of hands qualify as confirmation. Specifically, confirmation is the laying on of hands by the bishop for the filling or strengthening of the Holy Spirit. And that's going to be my outline for today. Confirmation is, number one, the laying on of hands. Number two, by the bishop. Number three, for the filling or strengthening of the Holy Spirit. And we see those three elements in our reading for today. In fact, I'm just going to read it again. It's a short one. I'll just read it in very, very quickly and see if you can spot those three elements, okay? Acts 8, 14 to 17. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers there that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them, they had simply been baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. So firstly, in our text, we have the laying on of hands. Verse 17, then Peter and John laid their hands on them. Now, the laying on of hands is a very, very ancient ceremony. John Stott points out that it's used in four main ways in Scripture. It's used to bless, to ordain for ministry, to heal, and for the filling of the Holy Spirit. So it's used to bless. So remember that, that uh, Jacob laid his hands on his grandsons to bless them. You'll also remember that Jesus put his hands on the little children and, and blessed them. It's used to ordain. Hands were laid upon the Levites to ordain them to temple service. Moses laid his hands on Joshua to ordain him as his successor. The 12 laid their hands on the seven deacons to appoint them for ministry. St. Paul and the presbyters laid hands on Timothy to, to ordain him for ministry. It's used to heal, and I don't have time to go through all the examples in the Gospels of Jesus laying his hands on people for the purpose of healing the sick. And finally, it's used for the filling of the Holy Spirit, which I'll talk about in my last point. Now, why the laying on of hands? Doesn't sound too spiritual, right? Why is such physicality and materiality? I spoke a little about, about this last, oh, by the way, if you weren't here last Sunday, I'm Grady. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a priest here. Um, but I spoke a little bit about this last Sunday, but I want to touch on it again because we're celebrating so many sacraments and ceremonies this month. Actually, it's crazy, Rob. We had uh, anointing last week. Uh, this Sunday, we have confirmations. Next Sunday, we have a baptism. So exciting. Uh, every Sunday, we receive absolution and Holy Communion. We just need to throw in an ordination and a wedding, and we're good to go. We've got them all covered. So if anyone wants to get married after the service, just let me know, and we'll work that out. I didn't plan this, by the way. All these sacraments, I didn't plan this. I'm new here. So you can't blame the high church priest for coming in and all having all these sacraments. Okay. Oil, hands, bread, wine, water. 
what do these visible material things have to do with invisible spiritual realities? Well, I think um, some of us may have probably grown up in traditions, I certainly did, where the material and the spiritual were understood to be kind of separate and unrelated to one another and never the twain shall meet. We may have grown up with the presupposition that we live a kind of a material existence here on earth. In heaven, the spiritual realm of God and the angels and the departed spirits is kind of, we don't know exactly know where it is, we just know it's not here, it's far away somewhere, uh, disconnected from our earthly experience. If while we're in the body, we kind of mentally assent to a set of propositional statements about God, then when we die, uh, our spirits will shed these shells of of matter and go and live forever in a spiritual heaven. That worldview that I just described, which I think I, I, I think I grew up in that worldview, I think that has more in common with certain Greek philosophies than it does with biblical faith. The biblical worldview, and I would say the Christian worldview for the solid first 1,500 years, understood that our bodies and our spirits belong together as a unity. And I think intuitively we know this, right? So if I ask you, are you body or spirit? What do you say? Yes. Yes. Right? And we know that um, we're, we're all kind of interconnected. Body, mind, and spirit. When something's wrong with our mind, we f- it, it comes out in our body. Right? So they're not just, it's not just like we have three separate parts to us. They're knit together. And they're, they're not really, really separable. And that's why, that's why death is such an enemy for us, because death rends the soul from the body. And that's not meant to be. So our great hope as Christians is not spiritual escape when we die. Our great hope is the reunion of, of body and spirit upon a restored earth. The material and the spiritual, the visible and the invisible are related to one another. They interact with one another. And the sacraments are actually points of contact or overlap between the material and the spiritual. The the sign and the thing signified participate in one another. So St. Paul says when we have communion, it is a remembrance, of course. It's a remembrance of what Christ has done for us. But it's not only a remembrance when we have communion. We don't just recall a historical event. St. Paul says that the bread that we bless and the wine that we bless is a participation in the body of Christ and the blood of Christ. I know this might be kind of new for, for some of us, but I think it's exciting. So that's the first point. Uh, the laying on of hands. That's why we lay on hands. Secondly, it's the laying on of hands by the bishop. Verse 14, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. So earlier on in chapter 8, we learn that the Samaritans came to faith thanks to the ministry of a guy named Philip. Philip the evangelist. Now, Philip was a deacon. Uh, He was one of the seven ordained by the apostles in Acts chapter 6. So Philip preached the word to the Samaritans. In fact, the text says he cast out demons, he healed the sick, and he baptized many who came to faith. But, interestingly, Philip 
didn't lay hands on any of the new believers. Instead, the apostles sent Peter and John to Samaria, who laid their hands on the baptized, and they received the Holy Spirit. Why? Why? Why didn't Philip just lay hands on them? Why was it necessary that the apostles did this? Well, I don't think it's about asserting hierarchical power. And if you know Ron, you know that that's the last thing that he's about. <laughs> he's such a gentle man. Remember our Lord's words to his apostles? He said to, the, to, to his apostles, who are going to be the, his representatives in the world, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you, he says. Instead, whoever wants to become great amongst you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So I don't think the laying on of hands by the apostles is a, all about you know, asserting hierarchical power. I think it's more about preserving unity and continuity. St. John reminds us in his epistles that there are many spirits in the world and that not all of them are the Holy Spirit. He exhorts us. He says, test the spirits to see whether they are from God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. In the early church, as today, many self-appointed teachers and prophets set themselves up as spiritual authorities. Just turn on the TV and you can see one of those this morning or this afternoon. Though they haven't been ordained or commissioned by the body of Christ, they set themselves up as a spiritual authority. So I think that the apostles laying on, on hands on those who are baptized is confirmation, if you will, that the spirit these Samaritans are receiving is the same spirit that came upon our Lord at his baptism. It's the same spirit that Jesus breathed on his apostles on that first Easter Sunday. It's the same spirit that fell upon them at Pentecost. It's the same spirit that hovered over the chaos at the creation. That is the spirit that we're talking about, the Holy Spirit. As St. Paul says, there's one body and one Holy Spirit, just as you were called to hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Now, the church no longer has apostles. Sorry, Bishop Ron, but you're not an apostle. <laughs> He's relieved. He's relieved. Uh, but in our Anglican tradition, we understand our bishops to be the spiritual successors of the apostles. They're not apostles, but the bishops are responsible for safeguarding and transmitting the apostolic faith, and they serve as living symbols of the unity and continuity of our faith. This was the understanding of the early church. In the third century, the great African bishop, Cyprian of Carthage, had this to say, and I'm sorry that I'm quoting so many church fathers today. I didn't quote any last week, so they're, it's kind of coming out of the corners today. So I'll try to tone it down for next week. But this is what Cyprian says. He said, and this is actually, he's commenting on our, on our text that was read today. He says, it was not fitting that the Samaritans should be baptized again, but only what was wanting. That was done by Peter and John, that prayer being made for them in hands and posed, the Holy Spirit should be invoked and poured forth upon them. Now listen to what he says. 
which also is now done among us. So that they who are baptized in the church are presented to the bishops of the church, and by their prayer and imposition of hands, they receive the Holy Spirit and are perfected with the seal of the Lord. I just think it's so cool that what we're doing today is what happened to the Samaritans with the apostles. It's what happened with Cyprian of Carthage in the third century. And now we're doing the same thing when we're baptized. We bring those who are baptized among us to the bishop who lays their hands on them for the reception of the Holy Spirit. What a great continuity with our faith of those who have gone before. Okay, so, so to review so far, confirmation is number one, what? The laying on of hands. Number two, by the bishop. And now to our final point for the filling or strengthening of the Holy Spirit. Now, <laughs> I think we need to tread very lightly on this point. Even with regard to the Samaritans in our text, I'm not sure that we can say that they didn't have the Holy Spirit prior to the laying on of hands. In fact, St. Paul says, nobody can say Jesus is Lord but by the Holy Spirit, right? So the Samaritans had accepted the word of God. They had professed Christ as Lord. This can only be done by the Spirit. The Samaritans had also been baptized. And baptism is the outward visible sign of our inward and spiritual new birth by the Spirit. So be encouraged if you can say Jesus is Lord, or if you said that creed, that the Holy Spirit is the one that's bubbling that up in you. Be encouraged. The Spirit's within you. You know, even with the Pentecost event, and again, I'm treading very lightly here, the apostles were filled with the Spirit at Pentecost. Yes, of course. But I don't know if we can say that the apostles didn't have the Spirit prior to Pentecost. On that Easter Sunday, the risen Jesus, remember what he did? He breathed on his apostles. And what did he say? Receive the Holy Spirit. So they received the Holy Spirit on that first Easter Sunday, but were also subsequently filled with the Spirit at Pentecost. Mysterious. Furthermore, I think we need to point out that in the book of Acts, this filling of the Spirit doesn't always happen in the same order or in the same way in every instance. In some instances, people hear the word and they believe, and boom, the Holy Spirit comes upon them right then. And then they're like, oh, these people receive the Spirit. We should probably baptize them. <laughs> so they baptize them after they receive the Holy Spirit. They actually say, what's to prevent them from receiving baptism? So, and then in, in Acts chapter 19, we see the same pattern as we do in our text for today. There were some disciples in Ephesus who had actually only received the baptism of John. So then they received baptism in the name of the Lord Jesus. St. Paul, the apostle, put his hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. And that's what's become normative in the church. And actually, Bishop Ron and I were talking about this before. The way that we do it, baptism followed by the laying on of hands, has become normative. But that doesn't mean that we're throwing rocks at other traditions, saying whatever is going on over there is bad, and you've got to make sure that you do it this way. No, it's normative. Good, good. But I think these different orders of, of the things in Acts serve as a warning to us to not make a kind of very strict formula out of these things. And I think we can say that God works through the sacraments, yes, 
But I think we can also say that God is not bound by the sacraments because he's God and he can do whatever he wants to do. And sometimes he does. Jesus says in John's gospel, the wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. So, and along these same lines, I think we need to be careful that we don't attribute the power of conferring the Spirit to bishops as some kind of magical power that they possess. In fact, in our chapter today, Acts chapter 8, Simon the sorcerer sees that the Spirit is given through the laying on of hands, and he wants to acquire this power for himself. Listen to the text. I'll read it quick. When Simon saw the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, Give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Peter answered, in Peter fashion, May your money perish with you, <laughs> because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. Peter said, you have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. So the filling of the Spirit through the laying on of hands is not a power possessed by the bishop. It's the gift of God graciously administered through his servants. Okay. And I think the filling of the Spirit at confirmation, we don't have to assert that the Spirit doesn't already dwell in those receiving confirmation because they've already confessed Jesus as Lord. They've already been born from above by the Spirit in baptism. So you might ask, okay, so what's going on then? What is happening at confirmation that didn't happen when we came to faith or when we were baptized? Well, again, I'm not going to put too fine a point on this. Uh, and in fact, there's, you know, some folks have tried to put a very fine point on the difference between the baptism in the Spirit, the filling of the Spirit, being full of the Spirit, the Spirit coming upon us. I think there's a lot of mystery here. But here's one way to get at it. And by the way, as Anglicans, there's room for different convictions and interpretations around this stuff. Okay. But here's one way to get at it. On Easter morning, the apostles received the Spirit from the breath of Jesus. But they were also told to wait to be empowered from on high before bearing witness to Christ in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And they stayed, this little huddled group, and they didn't perform their mission, even though Jesus had breathed on them and they had the Holy Spirit. The unique filling and empowering happened at Pentecost. So I think we can say, I think, I think, I don't know, I don't know. I think we can say that when we confess Jesus as our Lord and are baptized, we do so by the Spirit. And we have the Spirit dwelling in us. But at confirmation, we are filled in a special way or strengthened by the Spirit to empower us to bear witness to Christ in the world. This is reflected in the liturgy. And, and as, you, as we go through this service, you can see in the liturgy things, these types of things emerging. Here's what the preface for confirmation in our prayer book says. It says, In confirmation, through the bishop's laying on of hands and power for daily increase in the Holy Spirit, God strengthens the believer for Christian life in the service of Christ and his kingdom. Grace is God's gift, and we pray he will pour out his spirit upon those who have already been made his children by adoption and grace and baptism. So that kind of encapsulates the mystery of we have the spirit, but we're praying for a special filling and for more, for an equipping. 
Okay, so how are we doing? Doing okay? So what's confirmation? Laying on of? Number two, by the? For the? Yeah. <laughs> it's, like when you, it's like when you sing happy birthday to two people, you know? Uh, for the filling or strengthening of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so what is the Lord calling us to in light of this? I think the Lord may be calling us to live into a more embodied faith. If our faith remains here, or if it remains here, I think we're missing out on a major dimension of our life in Christ. The Lord may be calling some of us to be baptized today. We believe not only is baptism uh, our standing up and saying, I belong to Jesus, but that God's doing something in baptism. Something's happening. So maybe you're being called to, to be baptized today. Or the Lord may be calling us to be confirmed. You might say, well, do I have to be confirmed? Is it necessary? My answer would be, well, no, it's not necessary. But I would also say that if we're asking that question, we're asking the wrong question. Asking if confirmation is necessary is akin to asking, uh, what are the minimum requirements for being a Christian? You know, but why would we want the minimum? Well, I'm going to give you an analogy. Okay, let's say my best friend uh, Jason Eisenhower calls me up this afternoon and says, "Hey, great, um, I'm making lamb today, and I'm planning on opening up that old bottle of Bordeaux that I'm saving, and I want to share it with you. Can you come? Can you come?" And here's my response: Is it necessary? Is it necessary? Um, it, do I, if we're going to remain best friends, do I have to come for dinner tonight? It's, it's, the, it's the wrong question. Of course we're going to still be best friends if, if we don't go for dinner. Yes, I'm totally secure that I'm his friend and he's my friend. And, but, but Jay wants to pour out blessing upon us and my family. He wants to feed us with lamb and with good wine and with his fellowship. So is it necessary? No, no. But it's, uh, it's available. So why would we refuse it? So God wants to pour out his spirit to fill us and strengthen us for our life with him. One more thing by way of application. Sometimes when our faith stays up here or when it stays in here, it can seem kind of unreal. You might notice this in your prayer life, you know. I know I've noticed this before where let's say you're, you're sitting with your coffee at home and, you're, and you're, you're praying and you kind of ask yourself, am I thinking right now or am I praying? Am I just thinking or am I praying? One thing that leaning into an embodied faith can do is if you're struggling and kind of like, you know what, this, I'm not feeling like I'm praying right now. You can put your coffee down and get on your knees. And your body is going to communicate to you, I'm praying now. Or you don't have to get on your knees. The early Christians actually stood up and faced east to pray. You don't have to do that. But these, these bodily motions, and, and the other thing you can do is you can go into your room and close the door and pray audibly. Then your body is teaching you, you're not just thinking, you're praying. You're praying. And that helps, so that embodied help can, prayer can kind of help. And that, that's why, by the way, 
when Anglicans cross themselves? It's not superstitious. It's not magic. It's a bodily way of saying that I belong to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit because of what Jesus did on the cross. It's a bodily way of saying that. And if you're a charismatic Anglican, you do that by doing this. And that's okay, too. We can, we can make space for all of it, but either one, this or this, is praying with our bodies. And so then our bodies can instruct us. We're not just thinking, we're praying. That actually wasn't my point. That just came out, but I'm going to stick to the... <laughs> Man. Okay, so when we feel that the faith is in here and in here, I just want to let you in on something that has really helped my faith feel real. And that's the practice of confession, or what the prayer book calls the reconciliation of penitence. It's one of the church's rites of healing. And as Anglicans, I can feel people shifting in their seats now, as Anglicans, we're not required to confess our sins in the presence of a minister. It's not necessary. But it's available to anyone, and it's been a game changer for me in my life with Christ. Why? On Sundays, we corporately confess our sins and receive absolution, and that's so good. And here we have this little rejoicing time afterwards that I've never seen in any other church, which is really cool. We corporately confess our sins, we hear the words of forgiveness, and then we rejoice. Good, good, let's keep doing that. But the specific ways we've not obeyed God, or the specific ways we've been selfish, or the specific ways we've hurt others this week, this month, this year, and we've all got them, they tend to kind of remain in here. They remain inside. When we confess our sins to God in the presence of one of God's ministers, the sin that is inside becomes audible. We use our mouth and it comes out of us. And the, and the minister who's sitting there with us hears it with their ears. So it, it becomes real. And then here's the best part. That sin that is hanging in the air through the words of absolution is obliterated. It's gone. It's no longer in here, and it's no longer hovering in the air because of what Jesus has accomplished. It's over. And by the way, you don't have to do this with a priest. You can go to a trusted friend. St. James says, confess your sins one to another. So if you have a friend that you trust, you can go to them and say, will you hear my confession and just speak the words of forgiveness over me? We can do that for one another in the body of Christ. Is it necessary? Is it necessary? Well, I think it's the wrong question. The mercy and grace and forgiveness and healing of Jesus is available to us through the ministry of the church. Why would we refuse it? Let's pray.